This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth come back more to the, to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now these people are in very high position, yeah. Yes. We're back, and, you know, there probably is, there were endless amounts of things we could say about Vanderbilt, but for the sake of time, you kind of get the idea, you know, mm-hmm. they have 20 trillion dollars whatever yes (laughs) allegedly and you know one of their scions is like on tv every night telling you what to think so there's that (laughs) but we're gonna move on to another tycoon who probably arguably even more than vanderbilt his name reeks of infamy and vanderbilt will pop up in the story of Jay Gould a little True. bit because yes. yeah, one of his most notorious exploits involves cheating Vanderbilt out of some money. Well, you know, like quote unquote cheating again, I think in an, I'm not sure if this will be preserved in, uh, I haven't listened to what was left of our recording that wasn't corrupted by a uh, very bizarre sounding gin, but we were talking about like, you know, the analogy of like a casino where like, you know, there was a subsidy for certain people to cheat. Um, but you know, it was all at the expense of like the average people who came in. Uh, and so it's I mean, like, basically, you know, yeah, you it's can like the, almost the profit, say it's cheating, but well, I mean, he was sense. aggrieved by it, I guess. Uh, you can't really say that it was unfair since it was entirely based on his own conduct, but he was aggrieved by it. Yeah, they, they got into some shady business with one another. We're, of course, we're talking about Jay Gould and uh, yeah, his relationship with uh, Commodore Vanderbilt. <laughs> Very topsy-turvy, but Jay Gould is was also somebody who kind of, like, rocketed up out of nowhere and, you know, basically in the span of, like, less than a decade became one of the chief owners of various railroads and aggrandized himself immensely with that. But, like, wasn't wasn't content just to stop there. He wanted, uh, he gets pretty, he got pretty deep into the game of trying to manipulate the stock market in a pretty spectacular story, which we will shortly convey to you, but I guess we'll we'll start where Gustavus kind of starts, just giving a little bit of context for Jay Gould. Um, he talks about how this new fraudulent fortune, the greater part of it, was originally heaped up, as was that of Commodore Vanderbilt, in about 15 years at approximately the same time. One of the most powerful fortunes in the United States, it now controls or has exercised a dominant share of the control over more than 18,000 miles of railway, the total ownership of which is represented by considerably more than a billion dollars in stocks and bonds, 
I feel like this is important. The Gould fortune is also either openly or covertly paramount in many telegraph, transatlantic cable, mining, land, and industrial corporations. Its precise proportions no one knows except the Gould family itself. That it reaches many hundreds of millions of dollars is fairly obvious, although what is its exact figure is a matter not to be easily ascertained. In the flux of present economic conditions, which, so far as the control of the resources of the United States is concerned, have simmered down to desperate combats between individual magnates or contesting sets of magnates, the proportions of great fortunes, especially those based on railroads and industries, constantly tend to vary. In the years 1908 and 1909, the Gould fortune, if report be true, was somewhat diminished by the onslaughts of that catapultic railroad baron E.H. Harriman, who unceremoniously seized a share of the voting control of some of the railroad systems long controlled by the Goulds. Despite this reported loss, the Gould fortune is an active, aggressive, and immense one, vested with the most extensive power, embracing hundreds of millions of dollars in cash, land, palaces, or profit-producing property in the forms of bonds and stocks. Its influence and ramifications, like those of the Vanderbilt and other huge fortunes, penetrate directly or indirectly into every inhabited part of the United States and into Mexico and other foreign countries. The founder of this fortune was Jay Gould, father of the present holding generation. He was the son of a farmer in Delaware County, New York, born in 1836. He did a lot of chores. Uh, he grew up in pretty poor circumstances and uh, I guess often had to drive cows barefoot and uh, often bruised his feet, a trial which seems to have left such a poignant and indelible impression upon his mind that when testifying before a U.S. Senate investigating committee 40 years later, he pathetically spoke of it with a reminiscent quivering. So he couldn't go to school. His father was too poor, but he apprenticed under a blacksmith, and yada, yada. He jumped around. He, I guess he taught himself mathematics, I guess, as a uh, teenager, and then learned the basics of surveying. And we all know how corrupt those surveyors were. But he got hired for a little while as a surveyor in Ulster County. But then his first big break and his first big fraud was when he got in, he went to, he ended up in Pennsylvania and got into the tanning business with the support of a guy named Zadok Pratt, who's a New York merchant, politician, and congressman of a certain degree of note at the time. Pratt was impressed by Young Gold's energy, skill, and smooth talk and supplied the necessary capital of $120,000. Gould, as the phrase goes, was an excellent bluff, and so dexterously did he manipulate and hoodwink the old man that it was quite some time before Pratt realized what was being done. So finally, he Pratt tried to investigate where the money was going from this tanning business, but Gould was alert. He had already forestalled this move. During his visit to New York City, he had become acquainted with Charles M. Loop, a rich leather merchant. Gould prevailed upon Loop to buy out Pratt's interest. When Gould returned to the tannery, he found that Pratt had been analyzing the ledger. A scene followed, and Pratt demanded that Gould buy or sell the plant. Gould was ready and offered him $60,000, which was accepted. Immediately, Gould drew upon Loop for the money. Loop, likewise, became suspicious after a time, and from the ascertained facts, had the best of grounds for becoming so. The sequel was a tragic one. One night, in the panic of 1857, Loop shot and killed himself in his fine mansion at Madison Avenue and 25th Street. His suicide caused a considerable stir in New York City. So, yeah, I guess basically uh, it was freely charged later in Gould's life that he was the cause of Loop's suicide. And, uh, yeah, you know, so that was, like, the first it's, casualty of, like, ripping off. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting that he notes, you know, the exact amount of their fortune is known only to the Gould family itself. 
yeah, that's really uh, you know, interesting. kind of relevant to what we were saying. Yeah. yeah. And I noticed they, they, they did, they spread out interestingly as well. They also married into royalty, though. Interesting that, uh, well, Jay Gould II, who I believe was the grandson of Jay Gould, was actually an Olympic gold medalist tennis player in, I guess, like the 1920s. In the 19-tweens and 20s. He's actually the great-great-uncle of U.S. Olympic cyclist Georgia Gould, who uh, qualified in London 2012. But I guess he married Anne Douglas Graham, a cousin of Prince Abigail Campbell. Uh, sorry if I messed this name up. Kawa Nanakoa, and a, grand, and a granddaughter of, her, of a Hawaiian chiefess, and then had a bunch of children, including Jay Gould III, who was a lieutenant in the U.S. Army during World War II. And... He married the daughter of uh, Nigel Bruce, who I guess was a famous, played uh, Dr. Watson in uh, a lot of the old Sherlock Holmes films. He's a British actor. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, Gould married a third time to Lena Romay, who was a singer uh, in the, I think, 50s and 60s. Yeah. And she was a daughter of the attache to the Mexican consulate of uh, Los Angeles. So... Yeah. I mean, they got a... So it's interesting, marrying into Hawaiian royalty. I didn't know... There's a whole interesting thing with Hawaii there. That uh, yeah, yeah. True. So <clears throat> James um, Campbell, one of the wealthiest industrialists in the Kingdom of Hawaii, married uh, like a Hawaiian woman. He's Scots Irish industrialist, sugarcane tycoon. Anyway, so you know they, but yeah, who knows like where their wealth kind of ended up? I guess yeah. You know, or further says, back in this time, uh, they didn't really says, know. In the flux of present economic conditions in 1910, you know, uh, which so far as the control of resources of the United States is concerned have simmered down to desperate combats between individual magnates or contesting sets of magnates. The proportions of great fortunes, especially those based upon railroads and industries, constantly tend to vary. Uh, they were involved in transatlantic cable, too. That's interesting. Yeah, well, I know, cable, huh? Interesting. And then <laughs> I think we might even circle back to a kind of copper connection, I think, near mm -hmm. the end. Uh, mm -hmm. Though I think maybe the thing we're going to reference was a zinc mine. But no, I mean, Phelps Dodge... No, the, the Phelps Dodge Company was all about copper. Well, in Jerome, they, they were involved in copper, the oh, azurite, and big know, old family copper business. bearing minerals. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, you need copper for cables, don't you? You really do, do, copper wiring. Yeah, the original information superhighway. So, anyways, so Gould moved to New York City and set up as a leather merchant. And he had been, however, edging his way into the railroad business with the sums that he had stolen from Pratt and Loop. At the very time that Luke committed suicide, Gould was buying the first mortgage bonds of the Rutland and Washington Railroad, a small line 62 miles long running from Troy, New York to Rutland, Vermont. These bonds, which he purchased for 10 cents on the dollar, gave him control of this bankrupt railroad. He hired men of managerial ability, had them improve the railroad, and he then consolidated it with other small railroads, the stock of which he had bought in. With the passing of the Panic of 1857 and with the incoming of the stupendous corruption in the Civil War period, Gould was able to manipulate his bonds and stock until they reached a high figure. With a part of his profits from his speculation in the bonds of the Rutland and Washington Railroad, he bought enough stock of the Cleveland and Pittsburgh Railroad to give him control of that. This he manipulated until its price greatly rose when he sold the line to the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. In these transactions, there were torturous substrata of methods, of which little today can be learned, except for the most part what Gould himself testified to in 1883, which testimony he took pains to make as favorable to his past as possible. His career from 1867 onward stood out in the fullest prominence. A multitude of official reports and investigations and court records contribute a translucent record. 
he became invested with a sinister distinction as the most cold-blooded corruptionist, spoliator, and financial pirate of his time. And so thoroughly did he earn his reputation that to the end of his days it confronted him at every step and survived to become the standing reproach and terror of his descendants. For nearly a half century, the very name of Jay Gould has been a persisting jeer and byword, an object of popular contumely and hatred, the signification of every foul and base crime by which greed triumphs. <laughs> but, okay, once again, he goes, why this biased view of Gould's career? Yet it may well be asked now, even if for the first time, why has Jay Gould been plucked out as a special object of opprobrium? What curious, erratic, unstable judgment is this that selects this one man as the scapegoat of commercial society while deferentially allowing his business contemporaries the fullest measure of integrity and respectability? Monotonous echoes of one another, devoid of understanding, writer has followed writer in harping undiscriminatingly upon Jay Gould's crimes. His career has been presented in the most forbidding colors, and in order to show that he was an abnormal exception and not a familiar type, his methods have been darkly contrasted with those of such illustrious capitalists as the Astors, the Vanderbilts, and others. Thus has the misinformed thing called public opinion been shaped by these scribbling purveyors of fables, and this public opinion has been taught to look upon Jay Gould's career as an exotic, quote, horrible example. Having nothing in common with the careers of other founders of large fortunes, the same generation habitually addicted to cursing the memory of Jay Gould and taunting his children and grandchildren with the, remainder, with the reminders of his thefts speaks with traditional respect to the wealth of such families as the Astors and the Vanderbilts. Yet the cold truth is, as has been copiously proved, John Jacob Astor was proportionally as notorious a swindler in his day as Gould was in his. And as for Commodore Vanderbilt, he had already made blackmailing on a large scale a safe art before Gould was out of his teens. Gould has been impeached as one of the most audacious and successful buccaneers of modern times. Without doubt, he was so. A freebooter who, if he could not appropriate millions, would filch thousands. A pitiless human carnivore, glutting on the bud blood... <laughs> glutting on the blood of his numberless victims, a gambler destitute of the usual gambler's code of fairness and abiding by the rules, an incarnate fiend of a Machiavelli in his calculations, his schemes and ambushes, his plots and counterplots. But it was only in degree, and not at all in kind, that he differed from the general run of successful wealth builders. The Vanderbilts committed thefts of as great enormity as he, but they gradually managed to weave around themselves an exterior of protective respectability, all sections of the capitalist class, in so fiercely reviling Gould, reminded one of the thief, who, to divert attention from himself, joins with the pursuing crowd and loudly shouting, Stop, thief! <laughs> <laughs> we shall presently see whether this comparison is an exaggerated one or not. So that it goes through like a bunch of horrible things that like every single business was involved in, including like the food processors of the time and drug yeah. processors that, I mean, ain't nothing new. Like they're just killing people left and right and, you know, got to take the pills, got to take the pills. And, you know, there was absolutely like kind of no regulation or oversight on any of this shit at all. And the price gouging was egregious. And so he kind of acts rhetorically like what I else mean, this could is Jake still like learned? when like people be drinking like a laudanum and stuff, you know, yeah. like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's like um, like tons of like mercury and arsenic and like the milk. Yeah, <laughs> bunch of different cities. Awesome, really awesome. Totally cool. Capitalism works. And uh, they talks about like in the Mexican War, the Northern shoe manufacturers dumped upon the army shoes, which were of so inferior a make that they could not be sold in the private market. And these shoes were to be found so absolutely worthless that it is on record the American army in Mexico threw them away upon the sands in disgust. 
So yeah, that's like I, I also remember from Smedley Butler's War as a Racket, he goes through a similar litany in World War One, where I would say like the grandchildren of a lot of the people in this book were very active in selling all kinds of like deficient bullshit to the US military during that mm-hmm. war. I think there were yeah. like some limits put on it during World War Two under FDR, but like World War One is an absolute free for all. And yeah, so, you know, uh, Gould, like what else could have Gould learned from basically all like this class of psychos, the system of psychos that he grew up in? He watched and he observed and he saw that this is the way you get ahead, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's what he did. So as his like the person he swindled, like commits suicide, he starts accumulating railroads and let's see, then we can move up to like one of the more spectacular incidents in his life that gained him a lot of notoriety, right? Which is, mm-hmm. I think, we well, we can talk about, he starts to get into business with Cornelius Vanderbilt, I think over mm-hmm. the Erie Railroad, which yes. uh, Myers says he looted and wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It says, uh, not satisfied with the thefts of public funds, which he had basically been involved in, uh, in order to uh, gain the railroad to begin with, because, you know, it was supposed to be you know, a public resource, but, you know, it says, confiding in the fair promises of its projectors, the people credulously suppose that their interests would be safeguarded. But from time to time, legislature after legislature was corrupted or induced to enact stealthy acts by which the rail was permitted to pass without restriction as the possession of a small clique of exploiters and speculators. Not only were the people cheated out of funds raised by public taxation in advance to build the road, a common occurrence in the case of most railroads, but this very money was claimed by the capitalist owners as private capital. Large amounts of bonds and stocks were issued against it, and the producers were assessed in the form of high freight and passenger rates to pay the necessary interest and dividends on those spurious issues. So, you know, not satisfied with these steps of public funds, the success of clicks in control of the Erie Railroad continually plundered its treasury and defrauded its stockholders. So little attention was given to efficient management that shocking catastrophes resulted at frequent intervals. A time came, however, when the old locomotives, cars, and rails were in such a state of decay that the replacing of them could no longer be postponed. To do this, money was needed. Which, it really says, just think about the state of decay they must have been in, because, like, you know, they were allowed to get so bad deliberately, like, the point where they felt they had to replace them must have been so awful. But anyway, the directors finally found a money loaner in Daniel Drew, who we mentioned, an uncouth usurer. (laughs) He had graduated from being a drover and a tavern keeper. Wow. Usury and, you know, chilling koof juice. Yeah. Yeah. He had graduated from, yeah, uh, to being the owner of a line of steamboats plying between New York and Albany. He then finally became a Wall Street banker and a broker. Wow. What an unscrupulous career. From his loans, Drew exacted the usual required security. By 1855, he had advanced nearly $2 million, 500000 in money, the remainder in endorsements. The Erie directors could not pay up, and the control of the railroad passed to his hands. As ignorant of railroad management as he was of books, he took no pains to learn. During the next decade, he used the Erie Railroad simply as a gambling means to manipulate the price of its stocks in the stock exchange. In this way, he fleeced a large number of dupes decoyed into speculation out of an aggregate of millions of dollars. Old Cornelius Vanderbilt looked on with impatience. He foresaw the immense profits which would accrue to him if he could get control of the Erie Railroad, how he could give the road a much greater value by bettering its equipment and service, and how he could put through the same stock-watering operations that he did in his other transactions. Tens of millions of dollars would be his if he could only secure control. Moreover, 
The Erie was likely at any time to become a dangerous competitor of his railroads. Vanderbilt secretly began buying stock. By 1866, he had obtained enough to get control. Drew and his dummy directors were ejected, Vanderbilt superseding uh, them with his own. Mm-hmm. But, you know, things uh, started to, to oh, yeah, take a turn. There was a brief uh, moment of, uh, of, of softness with the old yes. Vanderbilt. Right, right, right. And, yeah, he learned his lesson about that. Mm-hmm. The change was worked with Vanderbilt's habitual brusque rapidity. Drew apparently was crushed. He had, however, one final resource, and this he now used with histrionic effect. In tears, he went to Vanderbilt and begged him not to turn out and ruin an old, self-made man like himself. The appeal struck home. Had the employer been anyone else, Vanderbilt would have scoffed. But at heart, he had a fondness for the old, illiterate drover whose career in so many respects resembled his own. I like how Gustavus Meyer, like, hates illiterates. Uh, and that's, like, one of his main, like, charges against his people is that they're, like, so, I think like, he's triggered you know. by how much they they get treated as, like, men of, like, high intellect and brilliance and stuff. And it's, like, they can't even read. I, I never caught uh, him making fun of, like, theory. poor people uh, that can't read. Yeah, true. I mean, they're definitely not the target of his scorn. Certainly yeah. not in, in this book. But yeah, I mean, I guess when you have all those resources and all that privilege, like the fact that they like take pride and just like glory in their ignorance and don't seek out knowledge is pretty repugnant. You know, Uh, reading (laughs) is a great thing, but, you know, people sometimes don't appreciate. Anyway, tears and pleadings prevailed in a moment of sentimental weakness, a weakness which turned out to be costly. Vanderbilt relented. A bargain was agreed upon by which Drew was to resume directorship and represent Vanderbilt's interests and purposes. Uh Mm Uh-oh. Reinstated in the Erie board, Drew successfully pretended for a time that he was fully subservient. Ostensibly to carry out Vanderbilt's plans, he persuaded that magnate to allow him to bring in as directors two men whose pliancy, he said, could be depended upon. These were Jay Gould, demure and ingratiating, and James Fisk Jr., a a portly, tawdry, pompous voluptuary. (laughs) In early life, Fisk had been a peddler in Vermont, and afterwards he managed an itinerant circus, sus clowns, etc. Then he had become a Wall Street broker. Keen and suspicious as old Vanderbilt was, and innately distrustful of both of them, he nevertheless, for some inexplicable reason, allowed Drew to install Gould and Fisk as directors. He knew Gould's record and probably supposed him as well as Fisk handy tools, as was charged, could do his quote-unquote dirty work without question. He put Drew, Gould, and Fisk on Erie's executive committee. In that capacity, they could issue stock and bonds, vote improvements, and generally exercise full authority. But then they betrayed him. At first, they gave every appearance of responding obediently to Vanderbilt's directions, believing it to his interest to buy as much Erie stock as he could, both as a surer guarantee of control and to put his own price upon it, Vanderbilt continued purchasing. The trio, however, had quietly banded to mature a plot by which they would wrest away Vanderbilt's control. Hmm. They quietly banded to mature a plot, but I guess it didn't involve more than 50 people, yeah, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, irrelevant. irrelevant, not, yeah. Capitalism would the, do this by itself anyways if there are no humans Yeah, exactly. Uh, what I think that he means, what I think that uh, Gustavus Myers meant to write was that a faceless maw possessed them uh, and <laughs> well, caused I don't them. Well, I don't want to throw out the possession angle. Yeah, uh, true. Completely. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, uh, well, yeah, a literal faceless mall did, did possess them. But anyway, this was to be done by flooding the market with an extra issue of bonds, which could be converted into stock, and then by running down the price uh, and buying in control themselves. It was a trick that Drew had successfully worked several years before. At a certain juncture, he was apparently caught short in the stock exchange and seemed ruined. 
But at the critical moment, he had appeared in Wall Street with 58,000 shares of stock, the existence of which no one had suspected. These shares had been converted from bonds containing an obscure clause allowing the conversion. The projection of this large number of shares into, stock, into the stock market caused an immediate and violent decline in the price. I am like, this is so infuriating to read. By selling, quote unquote, short, I love like that, you know, it's like in quotation marks and everything. It's still it's a new explained. concept. A Wall Street, yeah, exactly. A Wall Street process, which we have described elsewhere, Drew had taken in large sums as speculative winnings. The same ruse Drew, Gould, and Fisk now proceeded to execute on Vanderbilt. Apparently to provide funds for improving the railroad, they voted to issue a mass of bonds. Vanderbilt's mistake was when he tried to improve the railroad at all. Yeah, large no, quantities of these, yeah, that was his undoing. So, yeah, they turned over large quantities of these funds to themselves as security for pretended advances of monies. These bonds were secretly converted into shares of stock, then distributed among brokerage houses of which the three were members. Vanderbilt, attempt upon getting it as much as he could, bought the stock in unsuspectingly. Then came revelations of the treachery of the three men and reports of their intentions to issue more stock. Vanderbilt did not hesitate a moment. This is funny. He hurried to invoke the judicial assistance of Judge George C. Barnard at the New York State Supreme Court. He knew that he could count on Barnard, who at this time he corruptly controlled. This judge was an unconcealed tool of corporate interests and of the plundering uh, tweed political ring. For his many crimes on the bench, he was subsequently impeached. Barnard promptly issued a writ enjoining the Erie directors from issuing further stock and ordered them to return to the Erie Treasury one-fourth of that already issued. Furthermore, he prohibited any more conversion of bonds in the stock on the ground that it was fraudulent. Uh, so pronounced the victory was this considered for Vanderbilt that the market price of Erie stock went up 30 points. But the plotters had a cunning trick in reserve. Pretending to obey Barnard's order, they had Fisk wrench away the books of stock from a messenger boy, summoned ostensibly to carry them to a deposit place on Pine Street. They innocently declaimed any knowledge of who the thief was, as for the messenger boy, he, quote, did not know. These 100,000 shares of stock Drew, Gould, and Fisk instantly threw upon the stock market. No one else had the slightest suspicion that the court order was being disobeyed. Consequently, Vanderbilt's brokers were busily buying in this load of stock in million-dollar bunches. Other persons were likewise purchasing. As fast as the checks came in, Drew and his partners converted them into cash. So then, after the day's activity, Vanderbilt realized that he had been gouged out of $7 million. <laughs> Other buyers were also cheated out of millions. You know, the old man had been caught napping. It was this fact which stung him most. However, after the first paroxysm of frenzied swearing, he hit upon a plan of action. The very next morning, warrants were sworn out for the arrest of Drew, Fisk, and Gould. A hit quickly reached them. They thereupon fled to Jersey City out of Barnard's jurisdiction, taking their cargo of loot with them. According to Charles Francis Adams and his chapters of Erie, one of them bore away in a hackney coach bales containing $6 million in greenbacks. <laughs> the other two fugitives were loaded down with valises crammed with bonds and stocks. Here, in more than one sense, was an instructive and significant situation. Vanderbilt, the foremost black mayor of his time, the plunder of the natural treasury during the Civil War, the arch-briber and corruptionist, virtuously invoking the aid of the law on the ground that he had been swindled, drew Gould and Fist sargonically jested over it. But the joke as they well, uh, a joke as they well might over their having witted, um, outwitted a man whose own specialty was fraud, they knew that their position was perilous. Barnard's order had declared their sales of stock to be fraudulent and hence outlawed, and moreover, if they dared venture back to New York, they were certain, as matters stood, of instant arrest with a threatened alternative, either disgorging or of a criminal trial and possibly prison. To themselves, they extenuated their thefts with the comforting and self-sufficient explanation they had done to Vanderbilt precisely what he had done to others and would have done to them. 
But it was not with themselves that the squaring had to be done, but with the machinery of law. Vanderbilt was exerting every effort to have them imprisoned. So it's really great that he basically, you know, was like invoking the law to try to bring them to quote unquote justice. Yeah, because who allowed him to do it in the first place? You know, yeah, exactly. To begin with, I also read elsewhere. I don't think he mentions it here, but that when they were holed up in New Jersey, they hired like an off-duty like police brigade to like bring cannons. And like guns and stuff to like camp out outside of their hotel <laughs> should like Vanderbilt send any goons after them. Yeah, the thing but, with the messenger boy is so amazing. Like, talk about like uh you know, that is like a lie. Like that is just like complete fraud. So ridiculous. And like people's fortunes, you know, the fortunes of rich people, but also like all the vast armies of workers whose fortunes are like tied to theirs, you know, their whose fates are tied to their actual, you know fortunes in terms of money you know are just being controlled by this like wacky little con where you know they like have uh, a messenger boy like come and then like steal it from him uh you know themselves and then say like oops it was stolen this is literally like some like uncut bonds type shit like the it's like a level of insanity of like living on the edge like trying to swindle the most powerful swindler like they America. literally went themselves. Like they oh, yeah, had yeah, Fisk go and do it. They didn't even the like hire someone to do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no, yeah. this is a very dramatic finale when, you know, they're trying to figure out how to get out of the Yeah, and their solution to get out of their imprisonment is, is yes. quite... It's quite, quite something. So yeah. they were thinking, how is this alarming exigency to be met? They speedily found a way out. While Vanderbilt was thundering in rage, shouting out streaks of profanity, they calmly went ahead to put into practice a lesson that he himself had thoroughly taught. He controlled a sufficient number of judges. Why should not they buy up the legislature as he had often done? The strategic plan was suggested of getting the New York legislature to pass an act legalizing their fraudulent stock issues. Had not Vanderbilt and other capitalists often bought up Congress and legislatures and common councils? Why not now do the same? They well knew the approved method of procedure in such matters. An onslaught of bribing legislatures, they reckoned, would bring the desired result. So subheader, Gould bribes the legislature with (laughs) $500,000. So stuffing $500,000 in his satchel, Gould surreptitiously hurried to Albany. Detected there and arrested, he was released under heavy bail, which a Confederate supplied. He appeared in court in New York City a few days later, but obtained a postponement of the action. No time was lost by him. Quote, he assiduously cultivated, says Adams, a thorough understanding between himself and the legislature. In the face of sinister charges of corruption, the bill legalizing the fraudulent stock issues was passed. Ineffectually did Vanderbilt bribe the legislators to defeat it. As fast as they took and kept his money, Gould debauched them with greater sums. One senator in particular, as we have seen, accepted 75000 from Vanderbilt and 100000 from Gould and pocketed both amounts. A brisk scandal naturally ensued. The usual effervescent expedient of appointing an investigating committee was adopted by the New York State Senate uh, in 1868. This committee did not have to investigate to learn the basic facts. It already knew them. But it was a customary part of the farce of these investigating bodies to proceed with a childlike assumption of entire innocence. Oh, like the 9-11 Commission. Many witnesses (laughs) were summoned and much evidence was taken. The committee reported that according to Drew's testimony, 500,000 had been drawn out of the Erie Railroad's treasury, ostensibly for purposes of litigation. And it was clear, quote, that large sums of money did come from the treasury of the Erie Railroad Company, which were expended for some purpose in Albany, for which no vouchers seemed to have been filed in the offices of the company. The committee further found that, quote, large sums of money were expended for corrupt purposes by parties interested in legislation concerning railways 
during the session of 1868. But who specifically did the bribing, and who were the legislators bribed? These facts the committee declared that it did not know. This investigating sham resulted, as almost always happened in the case of similar inquisitions, in the culpability being thrown upon certain lobbyists, quote, who were enriched. These lobbyists were men whose trade it was to act as go-betweens in corrupting legislators. Gould and Thompson, the latter an accomplice, testified that they had paid Lou Payne, a lobbyist who subsequently became a powerful Republican politician, $10,000 for a few days' services in Albany advocating the Erie Bill, and it was further brought out that 100000 had been given to lobbyists Luther Caldwell and Russell F. Hicks to influence legislation and also to shape public opinion through the press. Caldwell, it appeared, received liberal sums from both Vanderbilt and Gould. A subsequent investigating committee appointed in 1873 to inquire into other charges reported that in the one year of 1868, the, re- the Erie Railroad directors, comprising Drew, Gould, Fisk, and their associates, had spent more than a million dollars for, quote, extra and legal services, and that it was their custom from year to year to spend large sums to control elections and to influence legislation. Uh, Vanderbilt later succeeded in compelling the Erie Railroad to reimburse him for the sums that he thus corruptly spent in fighting Drew, uh, Gould, and Fisk. Their huge thefts having been legalized, Drew, Gould, and Fisk returned to Jersey City, but their path was not yet clear. Vanderbilt held various civil suits in New York against them. Moreover, they were judged in contempt of court. Parlaying now began. With the severest threats of what the courts would do if they refused, Vanderbilt demanded that they buy back the shares of stock they had unloaded upon him. Drew was the first to compromise. Gould and Fisk shortly afterward followed. They collectively paid Vanderbilt $2.5 million in cash, $1.25 million in securities for 50,000 Erie shares, and another million dollars for the privilege of calling upon him for the remaining 50,000 shares at any time within four months. Although this settlement left Vanderbilt out of pocket to the extent of almost $2 million, he consented to abandon his suits. The three now left their lair in Jersey City and transferred the Erie offices to the Grand Opera House at 8th Avenue and 23rd Street, New York City. In this collision with Vanderbilt, Gould learned a sharp lesson he thereafter never overlooked, namely that it was not sufficient to bribe common councils and legislatures. He, too, must own his judges. Events showed that he at once began negotiations. And so then they they get out of that scrape all right. You know, they make it, it, Mm -hmm. it's like... uh, it's like when Tony and Ralphie, you know, robbed the uh, the card game in the eighties, <laughs> and then you know, so the, the, some conversations were had. The right people got their money back, you know, and um, they didn't get shot, you know, um, and killed. So, the, I guess the very next thing Gould and Fisk do is they they throw Drew overboard, <laughs> um, yeah, having yeah. no longer any need for their old right. accomplice Gould and Fisk by tactics of duplicity gradually sheared Drew and turned him out of the management to degenerate into a financial derelict. It was Drew's odd habit whenever his plans were crossed or he was depressed. Oh, this is, yeah, to rush off to his bed, hide himself under the coverlets and seek solace in sighs and self-compassion or in prayer. For with all his unscrupulousness, he had an orthodox religious streak. When Drew realized that he had been plundered and betrayed, as he had so often acted to others, he sought his bed and there long remained in despair under the blankets. The whimsical old extortionist never regained his wealth or standing. Upon Drew's effacement, Gould caused himself to be made president and treasurer of the Erie Railroad and Fisk, vice president and controller. When Gould began to turn out more watered stock, various defrauded malcontent stockholders resolved to take an intervening hand. This was a new obstacle, but it was coolly met. Gould and Fisk brought in gangs of armed thugs to prevent these stockholders from getting physical possession of the books of the company. Then the New York legislature was again corrupted. Uh, I guess they got a bill passed called the Classification Act, 
which uh, said that only one-fifth of the board of directors should be retired in any year. By this means, although the majority of stockholders might be opposed to the Gould Fisk management, it would be impossible for them to get possession of the road for at least three years and full possession for not less than five years. But to prevent the defrauded large stockholders from getting possession of the railroad through the courts, another act was passed. This provided that no judgment to oust the board of directors could be rendered by any court unless the suit was brought by the attorney general of the state. It was thus only necessary for Golden Fisk to own the attorney general entirely, which they took pains, of course, to do, in order to close the courts to the fraudage stockholders. On a trumped-up suit and by an order of one of the Tweed judges, a receiver was appointed for the stock owned by foreign stockholders. And when any of it was presented for record in the transfer book of the Erie Railroad, the receiver seized it. In this way, Golden Fisk secured practical possession of $6 million of the $50 million of stock held abroad. So yeah, they basically just keep going on like doing stock fraud and buying politicians. And uh, let's see, that kind of, <clears throat> oh, and then they put Boss Tweed on their board of the Erie Railroad. Right. Um, <laughs> I think like not super, yeah, about I think uh, 1868 or 69. And it was largely by the means of his corrupt alliance with the Tweed Ring that Gould was able to put through his gigantic frauds from 1868 to 1872. Gould was indeed the unquestioned mastermind in these transactions. Fisk and the others merely executed his directions. The various fraudulent devices were of Gould's origination. Uh, a biographer of Fisk casually wrote at the time, Jay Gould and Fisk took William Tweed into their board and the state legislature, Tammany Hall and the Erie Ring were fused together and have contrived to serve each other faithfully. Gould admitted before a New York State Assembly investigating committee in 1873 that in the three years prior to 1873, he had paid large sums to Tweed and to others and that he had also dispersed large sums which, quote, might have been used to influence legislation or elections. These sums were facetiously charged on the Erie books to, quote, India rubber account, whatever that meant. Gould cynically gave more information. He could distinctly recall, he said, quote, that he had been in the habit of sending money into various districts throughout the state, either to control nominations or elections for senators or members of the assembly. He considered, quote, that as a rule, such investments paid better than to wait until the men got to Albany. Significantly, he added that it would be as impossible to specify the numerous instances, quote, as it would be to recall the number of freight cars sent over the Erie Railroad from day to day. His corrupt operations, he indifferently testified, extended into four different states. Quote, in a Republican district, I was a Republican. In a Democratic district, a Democrat. In a doubtful district, I was doubtful, but I was always for Erie. The funds that he thus used in yeah. widespread corruption came right. obviously from the proceeds of his great thefts, and he might have added with equal truth that with this stolen money, he was able to employ some of the most eminent lawyers of the day and purchase judges. Yeah, so that was how he was operating, and I guess he had the support of the trading class. They loved him, and, you know, he made, he made kind of like, you know, a smoke-filled room deals with, uh, I think, various manufacturers basically mm -hmm. and you know would, would conspire basically to like give them favorable rates on the railroad to like bankrupt their competitors and they would give him privileges so all very cool all very uh, positive competition making america great well okay we should move up to kind of the the big moment where it's like it's not enough that he's taken over all this shit gould's thefts from the erie railroad were however 
only one of his looting transactions during those busy years. At the same time, he was using these stolen millions to corner the gold supply. In this Black Friday conspiracy, for so it was styled, he fraudulently reaped another $11 million to the accompaniment of a financial panic yeah. with a long this train of failures. This is the original Black Friday, uh, right? Or yes. yeah, at least an earlier Black Friday. I think it was the actual first one, right? I think it was. I think yeah. it was. But yes, mm-hmm. he, uh, yes, this led to- Because when he was writing, when uh, Myers this was writing this, the, you know, the more famous one at this point, had not happened. Okay, I'm gonna read the sentence again. Uh, <laughs> he fraudulently reaped another $11 million to the accompaniment of a financial panic with a long train of failures, suicides, and much disturbance and distress. So the gold conspiracy, as plotted and consummated by Gould, was in its day denounced as one of the most disgraceful events in American history. To a judge it so was a typical exaggeration and perversion in a society caring only about what was passing in its upper spheres. The spectacular nature of this episode and the ruin it wrought in the ranks of the money dealers and of the traders caused its importance to be grossly misrepresented and overdrawn. Okay, so yeah, this is this is about his, his efforts to basically corner yeah. the entire gold market. Which right. At the yeah, time, was the main reserve currency, and this was of a huge world. scandal. So once again, like Myers is at like incredible pains to explain that like this was not like an outstanding instance of uh, you know abuse by capital and capitalists, but it was a typical case, and in fact, not not even like maybe on the on the uh, the more mild end of what they routinely did. Yeah, no, exactly. And there have been multiple attempts to corner like the silver market and the gold market. Wasn't the Teapot Dome scandal about that? I think there uh, was. The Teapot Dome was involved. Yeah, like uh, the like Grand administration actually comes into play. Yeah, they, um, <clears> no, they do in a in very, this, yeah. once again, the personalities do matter to some extent, though they are all kind of acting out their, their class prerogatives. Uh, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, it you is, know, interpersonal uh, intrigue going on. It is interesting, though, what he writes, where he says, you know, the very traitors and financiers who beslimed Gould for his gold conspiracy were those who had built their fortunes on blood-soaked army contracts. Nor could the worst aspects of Gould conspiracy, bad as they were, begin to vie in disastrous results with the open and insidious abominations of the factory and landlord system. To repeat, it was a system in which incredible numbers of working men, women, and children were killed off by the perils of their trades, by disease superinduced and aggravated by the wretchedness of their work and by the misery of their lot and habitations. Millions more died prematurely because of causes directly traceable to the withering influences of poverty. But this unending havoc taking place silently and in the routine departments of industry and in obscure alleyways called forth little or no notice. What if they did suffer and perish? Society covered their wrongs and injustices and mortal throes with an inhibitive silence. For it was experienced that they, being lowly, should not complain, obtrude grievances, or in any way make unpleasant demonstrations. Yet if the prominent of society were disgruntled, or if a few capitalists were caught in the snare of ruin, which they had laid for others, they at once bestirred themselves and made the whole nation ring with their outcries and lamentations. (laughs) Their merest whispers became thunderous reverberations. The press, the pulpit, legislative chambers, and the courts became their strident voices and all the influential avenues for directing public opinion, ready advocates uh, sprang forth to champion their plaints and concentrate attention upon them. So it was in the gold conspiracy. So yeah, it's similar to certain things you could, uh, you know, draw parallels to today, where, you know, once like certain people, you know, are 
aggrieved or once, you know, in some way, you know, rich people are affected or the capital, like, you know, AOC's office. Is <laughs> well, yeah, it's like, you know, Peter Thiel and Elon like, Musk moving to Austin because like the tech, the California's a hellhole. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. Which is like, yeah, they were making it a hellhole, but like, or time, like, boohoo. Right. Or, uh, yeah, like Barry Weiss being concerned about, you know, wokeness and like the richest private schools in America or something, you know, like. <laughs> I know. Uh, my, the Dalton School has a great, you know, great teachers, great it. tradition yeah. of, uh, you know, the people like Professor Epstein. I know. know. Yeah, it's such a tragedy, but now it's being corrupted by Learning wokeness. When exactly. Professor Epstein was in charge, he would not have accepted that. Um, no, he ran a tight ship. No. Yeah. So, no. okay. So Gould embarks on his conspiracy. Um, and, you know, after the, the opening of the Civil War, Gould was exceedingly scarce and commanded a high premium. He kind of he kind of shits on Gould here. The supply of this metal, metal <laughs> this yellow dross, which to a considerable degree regulated oh, yeah, the world's relative point. values of wages and commodities, was monopolized by the powerful banking interests. In, 19, in 1869, but $15 million of gold was in actual circulation in the United States. Notwithstanding the increase of industrial productive power, the continuous displacement of obsolete methods by the introduction of labor-saving machinery and the consecutive discovery of new means for the production of wealth, the task of the worker was not lightened. He had, for the most part, after great struggles, secured a shorter workday, but if the hours were shorter, the work was more tense and racking in the days before steam-driven machinery supplanted the hand tool. The mass of the workers were in a state of dependence and poverty. The land, industrial, and financial system, operating in the threefold form of rent, interest, and profit, tore away from the producer nearly the whole of what he produced. Even those factory-owning capitalists exercising a personal and direct supervision over their plants were often at the mercy of the clique of bankers who controlled the money marts. Had the supply of money been proportionate to the growth of population and business, this process of expropriation would have been less rapid. As it was, the associated monopolies, the international and national banking interests, and the income classes in general constricted the volume of money into as narrow a compress as possible. As they were the very class which controlled the lawmaking power of government, this was not difficult. The resulting scarcity of money produced high rates of interest. These, on the one hand, facilitated usury, and on the other, exacted more labor and produce for the privilege of using that money. Staggering under burdensome rates of interest, factory owners, businessmen in general, farmers operating on large scale, and landowners with tenants shunted the load onto the worker. The producing population had to foot the additional bill by accepting wages which had a falling buying power and by having to pay more rent and greater prices for necessities. Such conditions were certain to accelerate the growth of poverty and centralization of wealth. Gould's plan was to get control of the outstanding $15 million of dollars of gold and fix his own price upon them. Great, great solution to all these problems uh, that were just listed. Uh, not only from what was regarded as legitimate commerce would he exact tribute, but he would squeeze to the bone the whole tribe of gold speculators, for at that time gold was extensively speculated in to an intensive degree. With the funds stolen from the Erie Railroad Treasury, he began to buy in gold. To accommodate the crowd of spe speculators in this metal, the stock exchange had set apart a gold room devoted entirely to the speculative purchase and sale of gold. Gould was confident that his plan would not miscarry if the government would not put in circulation any part of the $95 million in gold hoarded as a reserve in the national treasury. The urgent and all-important point was to ascertain whether the government intended to keep this sum entirely shut out from circulation. So he has to, this all, the whole plan hinges on 
is the government going to release more gold into the market? <laughs> right, so, yes. so, you know, to get this inside information, he succeeded in corruptly winning over to his interest A.R. Corbin, a brother-in-law of President Ulysses S. Grant. The consideration was Gould's buying $2 million worth of gold bonds without requiring margin or security for Corbin's account. Thus, Gould thought he had, secure, he had surely secured an intimate spy within the authoritative precincts of the White House. As the premium on gold constantly rose, these bonds yielded Corbin as much uh, sometimes as $25,000 a week in profits. To ensure the further success of his plan, Gould subsidized General Butterfield, whose appointment as sub-treasurer at New York Corbin claimed to have brought about. Gould testified in 1870 that he had made a private loan to Butterfield and that he'd carried speculatively $1.5 million for Butterfield's benefit. These statements Butterfield denied. Through Corbin, Gould attempted to pry out Grant's policies, and with Fisk as an interlocutor, Gould personally attempted to draw out the president. To their consternation, they found that Grant was not disposed to favor their agreements. The prospect looked very black for them. Gould met the situation with matchless audacity. By spreading subtle rumors and by inspiring press supports about, uh, through venal writers, he deceived not only the whole <laughs> of Wall Street, but even his own associates, into believing that high government officials were in collusion with him. The report was assiduously disseminated that the government did not intend to release any of its hoard of gold for circulation. The premium accordingly shot up to 146. Soon after this, certain financial quarters suspected that Gould was bluffing. The impression spreading that he could not depend upon the government's support, the rate of the premium declined, and Gould's own array of brokers turned against him and sold gold. Uh, next section, Gould betrays his partners. <laughs> cool. um, entrapped, Gould realized that something had to be done and done quickly if he, were to, if he were to escape complete ruin, holding as he did the large amount of gold that he had bought at steep prices. By plausible fabrications, he convinced Fisk that Grant was really an ally. Gould had brought a controlling interest in the 10th National Bank. This institution, Gould and Fisk, now used as a fraudulent manufactory of certified checks. These they turned out to the amount of tens of millions of dollars. With the spurious checks, they bought from 30 to $40 million in gold. Such an amount of gold did not, of course, exist in circulation, but the law permitted gambling in it as though it really existed. <laughs> yeah. This is so familiar to this is like GameStop, yeah. like this Elon Musk, exactly, like doing Dogecoin. Like it's so. Familiar. This is exactly what I'm talking about, where it's like such a depraved and like system that does not follow any kind of like you know, rational, like order or structure. It's just like totally shaitanic. Yeah, it's like lacking uh, it, both rationality and morality to like exactly absolute. It degree. just seems like driven by like needing to like sate the most like vile excesses of greed what if and I had to more? constantly stoke it. Yeah, it, exactly. That's the um, only structuring principle you can like ascertain. There's nothing like yeah logical or good about it in any mm -hmm. way that would yeah. appear that would recommend itself to anyone as a way to organize a society in any respect. It's, it's extremely wicked, and it actually gets wickeder. So by September 1869, Gould and his partners not only held all of the available gold in circulation, that's like staggering, <laughs> like all the available yeah. gold in circulation, but they held contracts by which they could call upon bankers, manufacturers, merchants, brokers, and speculators for about $70 million more of the metal. To the banking, manufacturing, and importing interest, uh, gold as the standard was urgently required for various kinds of interfluent business transactions to pay international debts, interest on bonds, custom dues, or to move the crops. They were forced to borrow it at Gould's own price. 
This price was added to the cost of operation, manufacture, and sale to be eventually assessed upon the consumer. Gould publicly announced that he would show no mercy to anyone. He had a list, for example, of 200 New York merchants who owed him gold. He proposed to print their names in the newspapers, demanding settlement at once, and would have done so had not his lawyers advised him that the move might be adjudged criminal conspiracy. Oh, interesting. <laughs> the, t- the tension, general excitement, and pressure in business circles were such that President Grant decided to release some of the government's gold, even though the reserve be diminished. In some mysterious way, a hint of this reached Gould. The day before Black Friday, he resolved to betray his partners and secretly sell gold before the price abruptly dropped. To do this with success, it was necessary to keep on buying so that the price would be run up still higher. Such methods were prohibited by the Code of the Stock Exchange, which prescribed certain rules of the game, for while the members of the exchange allowed themselves the fullest latitude and the most unchecked deception in the fleecing of outside elements, yet among themselves they decreed a set of rules forbidding any sort of double-dealing and trading with one another. To draw an analogy, it was like a group of professional card sharks deterring themselves by no scruples in the cheating of the unwary, but who insisted that among their own kind, fairness should be scrupulously observed. Yet, yeah. rules are no rules. Yeah, uh, just like mm-hmm. a casino. No one could gainsay the fact that many of the foremost financiers had often and successfully used the very enfilading methods that Gould now used. While Gould was secretly disposing of his gold holdings, he was goading on his confederates and his crowd of 50 or more brokers to buy still more. By this time, it seems, Fisk and his partner in the brokerage business, William Belden. Hmm. Uh, (laughs) Interesting. Oh, okay. Uh, This is on page 333, by the way, sus. Uh, (laughs) Anyways, uh, yeah, Fisk and his partner in the brokerage business, William Belden, had some straight inklings of Gould's real plan. Yet all that they knew were the fragments Gould chose to tell them with perhaps some surmises of their own. Gould threw out just enough of an outline to spur on their appetite for an orgy of spoils. Undoubtedly, Gould made a secret agreement with them by which he could repudiate the purchases of gold made in their names. Away from the stock exchange, Fisk made a ludicrous and dissolute enough figure with his love of tinsel, his show in braggadocio, his mock military prowess, his pompous windy airs, and his cubby of harlots, But in Wall Street, he was a man of affairs and power. The very assurance that in social life made him ridiculous to a degree was transmuted into a pillar of strength among the throng of speculators who themselves were mainly errant bluffs. A daredevil audacity there was about Fisk that impressed, misled, and intimidated. A fine screen he served for Gould plotting and sapping in the background. Okay, so (laughs) that leads us up to the day, Black Friday, September 24th, 1869 a day of tremendous excitement and gloomy apprehension among the money changers. Even the exchanges of foreign countries reflected the perturbation. Gould gave orders to buy all gold in Fisk's name. Fisk's brokers ran the premium up to 151 and then to 161. The market prices of railroad stocks shrank rapidly. Failure after failure of Wall Street firms was announced and fortunes were swept away. Fearing that the price of gold might mount to 200, manufacturers and other business concerns throughout the country frantically directed their agents to buy gold at any price. All this time, Gould, through certain brokers, was secretly selling, and while he was doing so, Fisk and Belden, by his orders, continued to buy. The stock exchange, look at these three amigos. The stock exchange, according (laughs) to the descriptions of many eyewitnesses, was an extraordinary sight that day. On the most perfunctory occasions, the scenes enacted there might well have filled the exotic observer with unmeasured amazement, but never had it presented so thoroughly a riotous, even bedlamic aspect as on this day, Black Friday, 
Never had greed and the fear born of greed displayed themselves in such frightful forms. This is like literally demonic. Here can yeah. be seen many of the money masters shrieking and roaring, anon rushing about with whitened faces, indescribably contorted, and again bellowing forth this order or that curse with savage energy and wildest gesture. The puny speculators had long since uttered their doleful squeak and plunged down into the limbo <laughs> of ruin, completely engulfed. Only the big speculators or their commission men remained in the arena, and many of these, like trapped rats, scurried about from pillar to post. The little fountain in the gold room serenely spouted and bubbled as usual, its cadence lost in the awful wow. uproar. Over to it rushed man after man, splashing its cooling water on his throbbing head. Over all rose a sickening exhalation, the dripping, malodorous sweat of an assemblage worked up to the very limit of mental endurance. What, may we ask, were these men snarling, cursing, and fighting over? Why, quite palpably over the division of wealth that masses of working men, women, and children were laboriously producing, too often amid sorrow and death. While elsewhere, pinion labor was humbly doing the world's real work, here in this, quote, gold room, greed contested furiously <laughs> with greed, cunning with cunning over their share of the spoils. Without their structure of law and government to enforce it, these men would have been nothing. As it was, they were among the very crests of society, the makers of law, the wielders of power, the pretenders to refinement and culture. Baffled greed and cunning outmatched and duplicity doubled against itself could be seen in the men who rushed from the gold room hatless and frenzied, some literally crazed, when the price of gold advanced to 162. In the surrounding streets were howling and impassable crowds, some drawn thither by curiosity and excitement, other by a fancied interest, surely fancied, for it was but a war of eminent knaves and knavish gamblers. Now, this was not a, quote, disorderly mob of workers, such as capitalists and politicians created out of orderly workers' gatherings, so as to have a pretext for clubbing and imprisoning. Nay, it all took place in the conservative precincts of Sacrosanct Wall Street, the abiding place of, quote, law and order. The participants were composed of the, quote, best classes. Therefore, by all logic, it was a scene super eminently sane, respectable, and legitimate. The police, worthy defenders of the peace, treated it all with an awed respect. Suddenly, early in the afternoon, came reports that the U.S. Treasury was selling gold. They proved to be true. Within 15 minutes, the whole fabric of the gold manipulation had gone to pieces. It is narrated that a mob, bent on lynching, searched for gold, but that he and Fisk had sneaked away through a back door and gone uptown. The general belief was that gold was irretrievably ruined, that he was secretly selling gold off at an exorbitant price was not known. Even his intimates, except perhaps Fisk and Belden, were ignorant of it. All that was known was that he had made contracts for the purchase of enormous quantities of fictitious gold at excessive premiums. As a matter of fact, his underhand sales had brought him 11 or $12 million profit. But if his contracts for purchase were enforced, not only would these profits be wiped out, but also his entire fortune. Um, and I guess, what did he do? He quickly extricated himself from this difficulty, falling back upon the corrupt judiciary. Upon various flimsy pretexts, he and Fisk, in a single day, procured 12 sweeping injunctions and court orders. These prohibited the stock exchange and the gold board from enforcing any rules of settlement against them and enjoined Gould and Fisk's brokers from settling any contracts. The result, in brief, was that judicial collusion allowed Gould to pocket his entire, quote, profits, amounting, as the Congressional Committee of 1870 reported, to about $11 million, while relieving him from any necessity of paying up, for his, uh, paying up his far greater losses. Fisk's share of the 11 millions was almost nothing. Gould retained practically the entire sum. Gould's confederates and agents were ruined financially and morally. Scores of failures, 
dozens of suicides, the despoilment of a whole people were the results of Gould's handiwork. Yeah, so after that, um, he had about 25 to $30 million by the you know, early 1870s. And yeah, got a, not only got away with it, like didn't have to pay any of like his losing bets, only got his profits. And I guess everybody, it sounds like, like Fisk and Belden were the only ones that were in on it at all. And I guess even they didn't get a lot of money. So really like he's like that 80s, like satanic serial killer villain that just keeps killing like his underlings, like yeah. periodically. And you're like, why does anybody work for this guy? Also, he just keeps yeah, murdering also everybody. kind of very... Very literally, very Dr. Evil as well. Uh, you know, yeah, just like always opening the trap door and like sending his underlings yeah, into no, like a fiery abyss. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, like Fuller, uh, yeah. The original dirtbag Dr. Evil uh, <laughs> yes. uh, trio right here. These guys. On a Monday morning, it began to rain. Round the curve come a passenger train. On the blinds was Hobo John. He's a good old hobo, but he's dead and gone. Dead and gone. He's dead and gone. He's a good old hobo, but he's dead and gone. Jay Gould's daughter said before she died, Papa fix the blinds so the bums can't ride. If ride they must, they gotta ride the rod. Let them put their trust in the hands of God, in the hands of God, in the hands of God. Let them put their trust in the hands of God. Jay Gould's daughter said before she died, two more trains I'd like to ride. Jay Gould said, daughter, why can they be? There's the Southern Pacific and the Santa Fe, the Santa Fe, and the Santa Fe. There's the Southern Pacific and the Santa Fe. Jay Gould's daughter said before she died, there's two more drinks I'd like to try. Jay Gould said, daughter, why can they be? A glass of water and a cup of tea, cup of tea, and a cup of tea. There's a glass of water and a cup of tea. Charlie Snyder was a good engineer, told his fireman not to fear, said, Pour on your water, boys, shovel on your coal, stick your head out the window, see the drivers rolls, and the drivers roll. See the drivers roll. Stick your head out the window, see the drivers roll. He had so many more like scandals after that, but actually, okay, there's one thing that you know ties so much together that we have to mention. Right. I didn't expect. Yeah, before we close out, we definitely should touch on what I I think you're referring to. Well, there's two uh, things I want to talk about. One is Phelps Dodging Company. The other one is a certain incident that happened in 1883. Uh, okay. Maybe, Maybe neither of those is what I was thinking. Oh, okay. Uh, what? Well, I don't know. What were you thinking? Well, I was thinking. Well, you know. Uh, Lord Gordon. Oh, Lord Gordon. Well, let, let's hold him for the very end because, yeah, the ultimate despoiler of the despoilers. But 
just want to mention briefly, because I, I didn't think he was, it kind of comes out of nowhere, but it's very SJ synchronistic that right mm-hmm. after he talks about this cold conspiracy, he kind of, he, he steps back again and says, look, like, you know, Gould is not a, a, as much of a ghoul as Gould is. Um, he's not the only one. So he says some comparisons with Gould. One of the numberless noteworthy and conclusive examples of the absolute truth um, of this generalization, I think uh, that like Gould was the only corrupt one, um, is uh, that of the great frauds perpetrated by the firm of Phelps Dodge and Company, millionaire importers of tin, copper, lead, and other metals. So far as public reputation went, the members of this house were the extreme opposites of Gould. In the wide realm of commercialism, a more stable and illustrious firm could not be found. Its wealth was conventionally, quote, solid and substantial. Its members were lauded as high-toned businessmen of the old-fashioned school and as consistent church communicants and expansive philanthropists. Indeed, one of them was regarded as so glorious and uplifting a model for adolescent youth that he was chosen president of the YMCA, and his statue, erected by his family today irradiates the tawdry surroundings of Herald Square, New York City. In the blue book of the elect, socially and commercially, no names could be found more indicative of select, strong-ribbed, triple-dyed respectability and elegant social poise and position. In the dying months of 1872, a prying iconoclast, unawed by the glamour of their public repute and contemplation of their wealth, began an exhaustive investigation of their custom house invoices. This inquiring individual was B.J. B.G. Jane, a special U.S. Treasury agent. He seems to have either been a duty-loving servant of the people, stubbornly bent upon ferreting out whatever fraud whenever he found it, irrespective of whether the criminals were powerful or not, or he was prompted by the prospect of a large reward. The more he searched into his case, the more of a mountainous mass of perjury and fraud revealed itself. So he basically discovered that Phelps Dodge and Company were committing like massive bribery and fraud in like manipulating import tariffs, basically, Mm -hmm. to the tune of like millions and millions of dollars. And I mean, that's kind of, it's a little bit dry, but I think it is interesting given that we just talked about in the Jim Sullivan episode about how Phelps Dodge and Company eventually became the owners of the gigantic copper mines in Jerome, Mm -hmm. Arizona. Right. And I think they, I mean, they, at the time of this writing, they were already involved heavily in copper and tin mining operations for a lot of them, like in the Southwest, I think zinc as well. And it is interesting that, you know, that, that is like a blue blood high wasp company. If there was one, I think I mentioned the episode, there was a diplomat from this family who was named Phelps Phelps. Mm-hmm. It's just like, come on. But you know, the Dodge family as well. And, uh, and you know, copper going back to, you know, the, uh, the kind of secret six Chicago industrialists and the cable industry and stuff, copper and tin for the military purposes. Uh, definitely mm-hmm. like, you know, going into like the war department and the Pentagon in the 20th century, you know, uh, and also like cracking down on labor unions, uh, you know, using, uh, like the, you know, the sedition act and stuff from world war one to like go after the IWW, it's just interesting. It's an interesting synchronicity. Um, but anyways, uh, the other mm-hmm. thing, well, okay. Do you want to talk about Gordon Gordon next? And then maybe we can circle back to the, uh, I don't know. Or we, or mm-hmm. I can mention it now. The, uh, the yeah, assault and battery. Yeah, mention Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, like before, oh, right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. You can, you can, you can, uh, 
Yeah, I guess, I don't know. They're both kind of like uh, interesting little anecdotes, I guess. Uh, yeah, so. You're referring I don't to, know. Uh, you're, you're referring to the, the, the New York Times. Uh, yes, I, I remember which, what you're yes. referring to now. Okay. Yes, the incident so in question. Yeah. I was just a little bit curious when I, I saw that one of the three amigos, uh, central amigos in the gold conspiracy was a. Uh, a, a banker or, you know, Wall Street broker named William Belden, given some <laughs> things maybe we discussed on the podcast recently about like extremely old line, uh, substantial families, uh, as mm -hmm. Gustavus Myers would say, like a Phelps Dodge level that I just thought is an interesting name. So I, I wanted to look into it. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of information out there on the internet about William Belden. And uh, for the record, Fisk, I think a few years after the gold conspiracy, he was actually murdered by a, a man in a kind of dispute over his mistress, I believe. So I, I think it was like he, was, he and this other guy were fighting over his mistress and the guy pulled out a gun and shot him. So Fisk was like out of the game, but Belden kept going for a while. And the only article thus far that I was able to find about him, you know, I was looking for an obituary or something. Um, you know, he, he certainly didn't uh, get get punished for the gold conspiracy, but he did get in a little bit of hot water with something else. So I, I found it like kind of an interesting article from the New York Times in June 6th, 1883. So I think I'll just kind of read it and it, it'll yeah. just be a little update on like, you know, where where will William Belden end up all this? So the headline is William Belden in court. Jay Gould's former partner sued for assault and battery. In the Court of Common Pleas uh, yesterday, William Belden, the former partner of Jay Gould, smiled placidly at a man who looked fiercely at him. The angry man was Andrew Reed, an athletic boss ship carpenter. He was plaintiff against Belden in a suit for assault and battery for which he asked $2,500 in damages. He testified that having done some repairs on the steam yacht Yosemite owned by Mr. Belden, he tried unsuccessfully to collect the money due him. Finally, he went to Mr. Belden's house with a bill. Mr. Belden met him in the hallway and told him gruffly that he knew nothing about him, as he had never ordered him to do any work on the Yosemite. He was about to offer Mr. Belden the bill when the latter said that he did not want to see it. As his wife had once handed Mr. Belden a bill, Mr. Reed asked him what he had done it, I don't know, typo, when Mr. Belden exclaimed angrily, I want none of your impudence, and took hold of him to object him from the house. He must have found the job too onerous for, according to Mr. Reed, he called another person to help him. Between them, they put Mr. Reed into the street, and then Mr. Belden kicked him. In telling of this episode, Mr. Reed glowered at Mr. Belden and spoke of him as, quote, that vagabond. After he had reached the sidewalk, he had to support himself against a friendly lamppost while he put his silk hat into shape to wear home. The hat no. was exhibited in court and was a most dilapidated tile. No. Wow. Wow. He fucked up his famed. silk top hat. Yes. And it goes on to like very racistly quote. Well, uh, paid, his silk hat. It's not yeah. clarified that it was a top hat. That that is a bit different. You know. Well, I, I mean, guess. a silk hat. Like what? What people wore silk hats that weren't top hats in the eighteen eighties? Come on. I think so. It's uh, definitely a top hat. It's a silk top hat. Uh, Don't ruin my fun. It's a silk top hat. <laughs> I mean, well, but he wasn't the guy wearing the hat whose hat was was messed up in this case was, you know, like a, a ship carpenter, right? You know, he wasn't. Yeah, he but I, I think people still, hands. I mean, he sounded like a successful, like, tradesman or whatever. So it, I don't think yeah. it was, like, so outrageous that he would have a silk top hat uh, of some kind as well. Like, a lot of a lot of guys had 
like those black kind of, you know, top hats, you know, back in like the 1880s. And the really, I mean, the irony is that William Belden is messing up his top hat when we know yes, that true. like 40 years later in Chicago, the incident of an, of maybe someone who is related to him getting his top hat messed up was the cause for calling out like an entire like league of vigilantes, like a, a bunch of Batmans to like go around the city to like hunt these like sicko jokers down. But, you know, in this, well, you know, it goes to court and he's able to fight it. And, you know, so it's like he can mess up people's silk top hats. But then when, oh, somebody else has the temerity to mess up, you know, one of his people's top hats. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just ironic, you know. Yeah, there's a really racist quote from um, uh, William Belden's, uh, uh, quote, colored servant, uh, Paige Carter. Oh, right. Yes, I remember this. It's written in, like, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah, like, it's not, not great. Uh, um, yeah. And he kind of says that, you know, uh, yeah, Mr. Belden swore that Mr. Reed refused to let him see the bill and declared that he would not leave the house until the sum he said was due him was paid. He was boisterous, and finally, Mr. Belden said, he put him out of the house, being assisted by Mr. William F. Sales, that gentleman corroborated Mr. Belden's story. Mr. Reed then retook the witness stand and contradicted both of them. The case was given to the jury last evening, and a sealed verdict will be handed into court this morning. Oh, I want to know how it, you know, ended up. But I guess, you know, that was the only hit I got. So I guess we'll never know. But, you know, he wasn't paying people. I mean, it kind of sounds like typical behavior of this set from a former business partner of Jay Gould. Um, not paying somebody for work they did, beating them up when they asked to be paid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, you know? So, I don't know. Just, like, this this kind of silk topperism runs real deep. I, I don't know yeah, for you know, sure. I'm, you know. I'm wondering about the hat. You know, I really am. Because, you know, why would you wear a silk top hat to, like, go demand payment from someone? Like for your work, I guess maybe if you really wanted to make a formal, like I mean, you've inquest. seen like you've seen pictures from back then, like all kinds. Of, it was very common to wear a silk. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture. Uh, I'm looking at like a drawing right now, date 1880. Henry Heath's silk hats. It is definitely a silk top hat, and it says the quote fashion period. Yeah, but very it's normal. Like kind it's of not a just fancy outfit. I mean, what about a bowler hat? Well, it's kind of it, that, that's that's what, I'm, that's what I mean. People wore hats very commonly back then, so it's not. Oh, yeah, well, it's it, not just silk topper. Like I'm sure a silk topper had like a really fancy hat, but like everybody wore hats back then. Like even poor people wore kind of those top hat things, but like maybe not. So if you were like a middle class person, then it's not inconceivable. Hat, though, like the kind of hats that I think that they were wearing in that original opera story are like Abraham Lincoln or like opera top hats, you know, like they're not just bowler hats. Like those are no, like they're not bowler hats, but like, hats. I, I think you're splitting hairs here uh, where they don't need to be split. Like I think here, let me send you a, 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 an image of what I'm talking about and you'll understand what I mean. It's not quite an Abraham Lincoln hat, but it's like a top hat. It's like a stovepipe kind of thing that goes up and has a Mesa, you know, yeah, bowler yeah. hats. Maybe. It's a silk hat. Maybe, yeah, no, That's and those were them. quite common. Those were common. Yeah, but I mean, maybe less so. The styles also, like certain things might have changed by the 1920s where wearing a silk topper hat might have been more of a conspicuous like statement of wealth because, I don't know, people were wearing fedoras and stuff back then. So like to wear a, let's wear a silk top in the era where like bowler hats and other kind of hats and fedoras and things like that were becoming popular among like yeah, working class and middle class people. In the 19th century, probably like mostly felt. Yeah, 
but like this top hat was extremely common, I think, in Yeah, wide it was definitely more normal to wear. I mean, it's not really normal to wear a top hat now under any circumstances. No, it's not. So but it I feel like this guy was going normal. to do business. He was and going it was he was going like, on a business you know, call and so he was wearing his top hat because he wants to be presentable as like a professional gentleman, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally normal. It makes perfect sense. There's nothing like weird about it. And then and then yeah. William Belden like beat him up and messed up his silk hat. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it is the 1880s, so yeah, it makes sense. I'm literally, I sent you a thing that's like from 1880, says the fashion, and has like exactly the type of hat. It says silk hats. Yeah. So like, that's definitely the hat that I envisioned when I read this. Yeah, I was picturing a more, uh, you know, a less extravagant hat, but that hat also is, is totally, totally possible. And I mean, people it, did, it, you know, I think where it was just a hat. You know. It was like the, his his hat that, that got messed up. So it's like not too, you know. Yeah. And it shares the name yeah. with the hat that in that other article we found. Yeah. But that is like very much, you know, like if you're going to the opera, you're going to be wearing your top hat. No doubt about it. Even like, you know, especially. In Are you going to make me Google silk top opera hat right now to see if there actually is? I mean, yes, there's kind of like a like a really like pronounced like opera hat no you're right i i, I, I kind of see what you mean like they're more exaggerated but those are probably from like the 1920s so like I, I think it was more of a culture statement in the 20s to wear like a big silk top like it's a more exaggerated version of a silk hat probably more expensive right. etc yeah i don't know i feel like they're i don't think there's like an issue here <laughs> I don't think it's a definitely not the issue. most important aspect of the story. You know? uh, it's the funniest just, aspect of the curious. story. It's the uh, funniest aspect of the story. Just ride with the similarity. Just like, like ride with the, the synchronicity. It's fine. But yeah. anyways, uh, I'm just so, you know, I'm just curious about this little detail of, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I feel like this is an important thing for us to plumb. Is like, you know, what context uh, were people wearing these top hats in? You know, were. Almost every I, every every like illustration or photograph I've seen from like the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties, like everybody was wearing hats like that of some kind, or they were wearing bowler hats. But like everyone yeah, wore hats. Everybody, like big yeah, hat hats, culture. Definitely hats. Definitely hats are widely worn in all types of contexts. Uh, yeah, cowboy including hat, top like, hats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm sure yeah. he had hats like a in decent general, hat. Sure. You know, like it was probably a, yeah. a, a nice thing to invest in. You know, but but William Belden didn't care and just like smashed it basically into yeah. a tile. Yeah. That's a yeah. problem. And wouldn't pay him basically. Yeah. For the work he did on his Yosemite yacht. Uh, I think he does have a mansion that has been like, you know, historically designated in Manhattan. Maybe it's in Queens, but it's still around today. That's the other main thing about him that uh, is known. But, oh, and he also married, oh, he will come up one more time. Actually, it's not totally irrelevant because he married either the ex-wife or the widow of Fisk after Fisk died. Mm -hmm. And so I remember that does come into play with the final, the final person we'll talk about here who is basically, he didn't really get away with it, at least as far as we know, but managed to despoiler the despoiler of the despoiler in getting one over on Jay Gould, right? Yes, he did. Absolutely. In this carnival of frauds, there was a guy who outfrauded even even him. Uh, it's a pretty entertaining story. We've been actually aware of this for a long time before before we ever read Gustavus Myers because it's a pretty wacky 1870s story. Yes. We had but come across this long, long ago. Was, and we had is to, this in the volume? 
I don't think that Lord Gordon Gordon is mentioned at all in Gustavus Myers, as far as I could tell. There's a good overview of him from the Manitoba Historical Society. That's right. That's where that's, that's where, we where found. he ultimately was apprehended after what <laughs> happens. Oh yeah, um, I, I remember this. Um, there's a website on Winnipeg Regional Real Estate News dot com. Uh, Lord of the Con, notorious swindler, hides out in Winnipeg. I think we, I think we read a lot from that. Um, and uh, what, what I recall reading from is this: there was this one Scottish guy who wrote like a, an affidavit during like the sort of legal battle that happened eventually between Jay Gould and Lord Gordon Gordon, which was an alias. People don't actually know what Lord Gordon Gordon's real name was mm -hmm. to this day or yeah. who he really was, but he basically swindled like a million dollars from Jay Gould yep. because he represented himself as like a Scottish nobleman. Uh, Much like Michael like, Aquino, he presented himself yes. as like the Baron of Arcane clan. Actually he did say he was from Clan Campbell actually. <laughs> yes. Yeah, just in sum, you know, he told Gould that he could help him gain control of the Erie Railroad with the help of several Europeans who had stock in the company on the condition that he, Gould, give Gordon Gordon a million dollars in negotiable stock and what he called a pooling of interests. However, as soon as Gould delivered the stock, he turned it around and sold it. That's just, you know, a Wikipedia summary of what happened. But after that, Gould got furious and he, Gould Gordon Gordon, fled to Canada. Uh, and Jay Gould chased after him and mm -hmm. basically like tried to like kidnap him back, yeah. pretty much. Uh, and he brought a posse that included a bunch of future congressmen. Um, <laughs> but they ultimately weren't successful and they were stopped by the Mounties. Almost and caused were, an international incident. Like yes, exactly. Uh, it basically did cause an international yeah. incident. The Minnesota governor like demanded their return and they were refused bail. So he was like, our militia must be ready. Uh, and <laughs> according to Wikipedia anyway... Thousands of Minnesotans volunteered for a full military invasion of Canada, uh, but the Canadian authorities eventually released Jay Gould and the rest of uh, the abductors on bail. Yeah. But yeah. what happened was it was such like a newsworthy scandal that news got back to Europe. Uh, this is an interesting portrait of Lord Gordon Gordon. This is a letter from a man named J.W. Simpson of... Uh, Glenisla Forfar Scotland that he wrote for it's the evidence uh, in the trial that was eventually persecuted by mm -hmm. uh, Jay Gould against Lord Gordon Gordon. So it says, my dear sirs, for the reasons which you can easily understand, I do feel reluctance to give evidence against our former friend, Lord Glen Cairn. But I also feel that it would be very unjust to you to withhold any information I can give you. I proceed to do so as shortly as I can. He first appeared here in June or July 68. So far as I can recollect, he then passed under the name of Hamilton and had a small shooting in this neighborhood. No one knew anything of him, and there was much surmising as to who he was, but as he paid his bills punctually, lived quietly, and had the manners of a gentleman, no one could find anything against his character or conduct. He left about the end of the season, having taken a larger shooting for the contract, uh, sorry, for the following two seasons. He returned next August and then appeared under the title of Lord Glen Cairn. During the previous season, he threw out hints to those uh, whom he came in contact that he was something grander than he seemed to be. To myself, he said that he had a place in Lanarkshire and another at Ayrshire, but that he had not good health at either of them. 
He also hinted that he had property in Northampton and England. His manner was not to tell anyone directly who or what he was, but to make statements which led to you to infer that he was a man of title and had property in various places in Scotland, England, and Ireland. When he returned in July, 69, as Lord Glencairn, there were grave doubts as to his character. His own account of his title was plausible, that his grandfather had left money in chancery, an immense sum to him on condition that he should take up the title of Glencairn when he reached the age of 27, that he was now of age and must take it up, that his agents in London had nearly completed the process, and that he would in a few months be served heir to his grandfather in the earldom of Glencairn. He did not speak to me of his Scottish estates, but often hinted of his property in Northampton and of the immense sums in Chancery. There were things about him I could not well understand, but as he continued to behave in a gentlemanly way and had friends from England with him, who were men of standing and respectability, and especially as he was certified to be a man of rank and wealth by his lawyers, a well-known firm in Lincoln's Inn, I was willing to think the best of him, and at least to wait until he discovered himself before I judged him. And he did discover himself. His estates in Scotland and England turned out to be pure falsehoods. His claim to earldom, whatever it was, ended in nothing. No process in pursuit of it had been entered, even in any of the law courts of England or Scotland. And though he left very little unpaid debt in this quarter, yet I know that he swindled various parties elsewhere out of large sums. I could enter into more detail, but it isn't necessary. I may shortly add that as in all material points, his pretensions to rank and property turned out to be utterly false and untrue. I can consider him nothing else than an imposter, and yet who or what he is, I know no more than the first day I saw him. With very much regard, I am, my dear sir, very truly yours, J.W. Simpson. So, yes, very uh, mysterious figure uh, who eventually, since he had been defrauding people, uh, you know, overseas in, in Britain and in England, the word got back to them after this sort of spectacular entanglement with Jay Gould. And the people in Canada, uh, the authorities in Canada, decided to come after him for that. And he, uh, also, there's you know, an interesting uh, tie-in here, uh, not just with, you know, Jake Gould, but I guess when he was running around in Minnesota, he met a number of people. And I think he, I think he actually met the wife of Jay Cook, not to be confused with Jay Gould. He was also a rapacious banker railway entrepreneur, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess, you know, he kind of made friends with them. And then I think he got invited to New York uh, to talk to Horace Greeley, the publisher of the New York Tribune, who actually right. coined the phrase, go West, young man. And, An amazing uh, neck beard, famous for his very amazing <laughs> neck beard. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Gordon, the real crux of his con was to run around and say, like, I represent a consortium of, like, English and, you know, British nobles that want to invest in land and railroads and all these other things. And, you know, he basically had, it was going to have, like, so much money at his disposal. It was going to be a big money spigot. And everyone wanted to get a piece of it. And I guess also Greeley was really enthusiastic about Gordon's plan to bring Scottish settlers to the American West. But here, here's an interesting little twist. Uh, so accompanying Gordon on the train to New York was Mrs. William Belden, the first wife of James Fisk, who we mentioned was murdered in a feud over his mistress. 
and this is kind of critical, her acceptance assured Gordon of an early introduction into New York society as her husband, William Belden, was wealthy in his own right. Gordon became a long-term guest at the Belden home in New York. According to a May 1872 affidavit Belden provided for a later New York Supreme Court trial of Gordon on May, he introduced himself as Lord Gordon, the Earl of Aberdeen, a Scottish nobleman, and one of the peers of Great Britain. He told me he had taken a seat as a member of the House of Lords when he was only 22, then being the youngest member of that body. He told Belden of his vast wealth, which Gordon alleged included an annual income of $3 million. Belden said Gordon talked about the Erie, claiming his investments in the railway totaled 30 million in stock, which he owned outright. Another claim was Gordon also represented a group of English stockholders who possessed another 20 million in Erie Railway shares. Using this information, Belden obtained a free lifetime pass on the Erie from Gould for Gordon, who met Gould uh, for the first time in March 1872 at the Metropolitan Hotel. So, yeah, the William Belden, I forgot about that as well. Like he was instrumental in in, in like co-signing Lord Gordon, Gordon in New York Blue Book High Society and to Che Gould who ended up getting taken in by him and losing a million dollars and all that shit kind of happened. Yeah, just to finish up Lord Gordon Gordon's entire uh, narrative here with his, uh, you know, uh, ignominious end. The attorney general, who had now become well acquainted with uh, Gordon's past, discovered Gordon on a hunting trip, but very far away. He sent after him with a warrant and had him arrested at Touchwood Hills. It would appear that Gordon realized another move was necessary, and he was on his way to British Columbia. Dr. C. N. Bell, a former president of the Manitoba Historical Society, told Colonel Porter that he was once asked by Gordon to guide him to British Columbia. The charges and countercharges between Gordon and the Attorney General provide material for a comic opera. Gordon charging the Attorney General with an attempted blackmail and set out on his charges against the Attorney General to the Lieutenant Governor for submission to the Executive Council for constitutional action and requesting that a copy of them be sent to the Minister of Justice. The story is in Gordon's handwriting in great detail. There is also a later letter in the Attorney General's file in which Gordon presents a mild form of apology and withdrawal. It can be understood that the suspicion of the case thus far did not satisfy the vengeance of Gould nor the responsibility for bail of A.F. Roberts. It was not before another line of, long before another line of attack was started. On this occasion, it was arranged for Thomas Smith of Marshall and Sons of Edinburgh to come again to this continent, this time to Toronto. He arrived, and with stimulation and assistance from New York, a warrant was issued upon Smith's evidence from this British court. Plans were made and completed for police officers to come over to British territory through the Dawson Road to serve this warrant upon Gordon. This was done. And Magistrate McNabb's warrant, issued at Toronto, finally reached Fort Garry and was countersigned by Magistrate McKinnon of Winnipeg. With the Toronto party was a New York citizen who remained in the background and who for the occasion assumed a fictitious name. The party reached the home of Mrs. Abigail Corbet at Headingley, where Gordon resided with his servant Pentland. He decided the game was up. He packed his bag, returned to his room on the pretext of obtaining a warmer quote for the trip back to the wilds of the Laurentian Shield, picked up an ever-handy pistol, and shot himself through the head. An inquest was held over which W.F. Lonsdale presided as foreman. At that inquest, Mrs. Corbett, sorry, Mrs. Corbett, gave lengthy evidence in which one important bit of information is buried. She stated that a number of weeks previously, Gordon had packed up some of his possessions and records and mailed them to, quote-unquote, Canada, which is an unknown and unrecorded supplementary story. There remains but one question. Who was Hamilton, Glen Cairn, George Hubert Gordon, Lord Gordon Gordon? There are a number of choices from which to select the possible. 
Colonel Porter has an excellent account of Gordon obtained from a letter of Colin H. McRae of Dundee, Scotland, written as a result of one of Colonel Porter's columns in the Winnipeg Tribune. Colin McRae was with his father at Pigeon Lake in Manitoba when one day Gordon rode up on a large black horse and engaged his father in conversation. His father told him that his name was Gordon, though he had known him as Hubert Campbell Smith, a lieutenant in a Scottish regiment, a regiment in which his father was a surgeon, some 20 years before in India. This gentleman records that his father had many visits from Gordon at later dates and often talked well into the night over incidents of the Indian campaigns. This appears authentic except for the age, which was accepted in Scotland in 1870 as about 27 or 28. And this is borne out again when the late Reverend George Gunn records in a notebook an interview with Dr. Andrew Fiddler. He had often seen Gordon driving through St. James between Headingley and Winnipeg, and he states that his age was probably near 30, with a general appearance of a cultured gentleman. What appears at this time to be the most reasonable is recorded in the Free Press of February 12, 1879. It is there recorded under the heading, Gordon Gordon, a mystery probably solved at last, who and what he was. There are two parts of the dispatch. One notes that Dr. Chambers of Chambers Journal made a very thorough investigation of the Gordon case through personal curiosity. And the second part is the substance of a letter from a very responsible correspondent in England to a responsible correspondent in Winnipeg, apparently vouched for by the editor of the newspaper. Briefly, it establishes that Gordon's father and sister had become known. They were of cultured, gentlemanly, and ladylike manner and appearance, and of an exceptionally good appearance, linguists of ability in languages of Europe, traveled and well-spoken. However, they were leaders in a group that operated from the Isle of Jersey in the business of international smuggling. Wait, they were, who was involved in international smuggling? His family, apparently. Uh, his father and sister. They were cultured, gentlemanly, and ladylike, you know, his father and sister, that is. They had ability in the languages of Europe, and they were widely traveled, uh, but they were involved in some odd operation in the Isle of Jersey, which I feel like we might oh, return might to, to as a sus day. hub later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. Um, but uh, for now, we should conclude. We should wrap up. Um, yeah. I just, uh, I just wanted to say, like, really quickly before we go, uh, that... I did find on the way on the time New York Times archive uh, just a, like a, a couple little more items about um, <clears throat> William Belden and his exploits after Jay Gould. He uh, was apparently arrested in 1879 at the firm of Belden, Connor and Co. stockbrokers. Two warrants of arrest in a lawsuit of General Thomas Eckert for alleged conversion of thirty thousand uh, dollars deposited by him into the firm, and then another guy suing for sixty thousand in damages for false imprisonment like he I don't know he like kidnapped somebody <laughs> huh. so he was arrested in 1879 this is like a few a number of years after Lord Gordon got done but then okay you want to get even darker there's an article from 1878 I guess maybe right before that called William Belden's mistress he accuses her of threatening to shoot him at his residence her side of the story she is committed without a hearing William Belden, the partner of Jay Gould, whose name is frequently brought to public notice in connection with the Black Friday transactions, appeared in Essex Market Police Court yesterday for the purpose of pressing a complaint against Mrs. Etta Wolcott, 
whom he accuses of endeavoring to enter his Fifth Avenue residence on the first instant with intent to shoot him. She was arrested on Thursday under a warrant and was lodged in the police station. Yeah, I guess uh, the justice refused to have an examination or give her bail. It appeared that from Mr. Belden's statement uh, that he has been annoyed by the woman for some time and that on the first instance, she came to his house and threatened to shoot him with a pistol, which is in her possession. He says it is a case of blackmail. Mrs. Walcott denies she has been annoying Mr. Belden. She says her husband was one of the firm of Robinson and Walcott who um, did business in this city. Okay, I know. We're it's interesting, but I got to go. My dog's okay. going nuts. Okay, uh, okay. Maybe we can, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe uh, we could hold that. Uh, maybe that can come up at another time. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is some, uh, he's a dark cowboy too. <laughs> I yeah. think we could say. Yeah, and also did elder abuse against his brother. But anyways, <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's a type of a class here. That's uh, yeah. what we're doing dealing with so we're going to be back with volume three at some point and then uh, a couple other Gustavus Myers books that are very fascinating but we'll leave it there for now that was a lot of information but I hope you're sickened by these sickos as much as we are and uh, until next time dear listeners stay vigilant peace Let me tell you then